Hello, welcome to the 12th episode of the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Todd. I'm here with my co-host, Jason. Hello. I think this time we're going to start, Jason, with your hot take. Uh, yeah, my hot take is too many riders do too many group rides. So ditch the group ride in favor of specific training that's going to address your performance limiters is where, yes. where you're going with this. So I think um, I did my first group ride in a while uh, this past weekend, and I noticed a lot of flaws in trying to ride in a group. You know, it, it's really social. It's fun. You forget your training sometimes, but also it comes with disadvantages. So for you, I mean, I think if you're racing a bunch, right, then you probably get the value out of racing. Uh, I think if you're maybe not racing, you feel like there's some value in a group ride of going out and having somebody else dictate the pace to you. Um, I think if you're a newer rider, it could be more advantageous um, because learning how to ride in a group is one of the biggest challenges for a new racer. Uh, and a group ride at pace can be helpful for that, but also you can learn how to go deeper if you if like on a group ride you're i i have to stick on this guy's wheel for the entirety of old la honda then uh you know you learn how to just bury yourself so these are good things but the negatives are uh you know lots of waiting around uh, lots of group uh you know i have to do what the group says i have to take their route uh, and a lot of a lot of people will go too deep as well and then you won't have a good workout the next day or um, you'll, you know, maybe get injured or mess up, you know, how many people have done a really hard group ride and then their knee hurts the next day? Sure. I mean, I think I'm generally on board with what you're saying. I think from my experience, I've seen that in my own training, right. Is like when I was a beginning rider, when I was newer, I got a tremendous value out of the group ride just from being in the pack, but also from pushing a little bit harder maybe than I would have on my own at that point in time. I think as I've matured as a rider and I have more experience, yeah, going on a group rides fun. Like I enjoy it. I enjoy the camaraderie and the, the people that I've grown to know over time. But if I want to get training done, I should just go by myself and put my head down somewhere and, and get yeah. done what I need to get done. So the reason that I have this hot take is uh, twofold. One, um, there's a ride called Spectrum, which is what the oldest NorCal ride um, that's been running every Saturday morning. And I saw a few Cat 1s that I race with on the ride leading it and it just was a bit of a head scratcher for me. I don't think that's necessarily where you get the most value out. Uh, and the other thing is um, there's a weekday noontime ride where a couple of riders, um, one, a cat one crashed out of the ride. And it's like, this is a, a Tuesday midday, you know, training crit. And you've, you know, now, now have a bunch of road rash and likely, uh, you know, landed on your hip and now you're, you know, dysfunctional in the, your hips until you stretch them out or, it's, I don't know. Uh, and, and also, you know, there, are, there was a group ride in Trexler town where all the trackies, Olympic trackies would do this Wednesday night group ride. And you basically like ride out in the social ride. And then the ride home this 45 minute ride home is just a smasher. And everybody in the, in the ride was a cat two cat one, you know, you couldn't even hang on if you weren't. So that you know there's some value people are safe people are good um and you get to learn how to ride with these really high level people but if you're doing a group ride with you know some people who are more casual you're a high level racer um, there's going to be some tension there and potential for accidents is definitely a lot higher yeah i mean i think i've 
I've been very selective now in my group riding. You know, there's there's one group ride that I do. I, I picked it because I like the crowd. I feel safe out there. We we go hard sometimes, but I I do it as much for the workout as I do for the social aspect of it. Right? Mm-hmm. I know I know if I want to go get a workout, I can go hard on that ride, but I'm not necessarily going to get the structured um, workout that I need to you yeah. know target my specific limiters. And in terms of high intensity stuff, you sh- really should just go do uh, six by one minutes you know, two minute rest in between instead of, you know, oh, well, it's fun because we race up every hill. Like, uh, no, you should just go do your one minute <laughs> intervals. Yeah. Well, there's just more structure, right? Like you have that structure, you have the recovery times that are set. You can do something very specific and you can get the specific adaptations that you're actually looking for. Like, I totally understand, you know, if, as you're looking at a group ride as maybe like a practice race, if there's that situation. Um, but you're also on the road with cars, right? Like you, like I don't, yeah. I don't know any group rides that happen on a on a closed area, right? On a closed course. So you're you're out with cars. You have to be cognizant of that, mm-hmm. um, and you can't really be racing flat out if you're, you know, also contending with people commuting home from work. Yeah, and well, now uh, I can introduce. Hey, you guys know what track cycling is? Um, you know, your Wednesday night track fun is one going to be safer than your Wednesday night training crit, but also uh, it's a very safe. Uh, contained mm-hmm. uh, event, and you also get more sprints than the one at the end of the training crit. So. Yeah, exactly. You get the one, the one sprint at the end of the training ride. Go support your local for. velodrome. <laughs> you know. So uh, that's a hot take. Um, if you want to move on to your topic for today, sure. I, I'm going to talk about descending and descending position a little bit. Um, you know, I think it's, it's interesting to me thinking about like road bike descending and aerodynamics. Like, well, how do I go fast? Because it's very different than how do I go fast on a mountain bike? Uh, mountain bike is sort of a, a very basic position, a little hip hinge, you know, your weight center mass is basically over the bottom bracket and shifts forward and back depending on the, the incline that you're going down. Um, how steep it is, the steeper it is, the further back that your center mass is from that bottom bracket. And that's kind of that. Like you, you just adapt it as you go and you're in this loose position and you're really maximizing control. That's, that's that. Like it's not necessarily the absolute peak speed, but it's maintaining your speed on a mountain bike um, and maintaining your control. That's going to get you down to the bottom of the hill fastest. And road biking, it's a different discussion sometimes because you can have these like long mountain passes or long road descents that have a long straight section. And now like, how do I maximize my speed going down this? How do I conserve energy when I'm going down this? And at the end of the day, it's going to become like, how do I get in the most aerodynamic position? Like, yes, you, you still need to handle your bike. I think that's one of the things that as we go through this and we talk about positions here, uh, some of them probably aren't so good for turning your bike um, mm-hmm. and others may be better, right? So at the end of the day, right, you have to find that position that's made the best compromise. And then some of these positions that get really aerodynamic on the bike require you to be quite flexible. I've obviously talked about this before. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's something that I, I talk about a lot, the, the importance of flexibility in our sport. Uh, so like if you really want to get into this aerodynamic position going downhill to conserve energy, you got to make sure your flexibility is up to par to be able to get there. Yeah. So, so this is a white paper. Uh, um, yeah, this paper was published in a, in a journal I hadn't heard of before, but a journal of wind engineering and industrial aerodynamics. Interesting. Um, it's published in October of 2018 and the title is aerodynamic analysis of different, uh, different cyclist hill descent positions. Okay. And so I, I just found, I found their methods also very interesting. I'm not going to go into it because it's like super technical, but, mm-hmm. um, just as a, like, a, like I think about, you know, like PT and medical research and how they do those methods a lot. So it's just interesting to see how they went through this study and, you know, 
what methods they use to get to their answers. So um, I think the most maybe interesting descending position we've seen as of late uh, belongs to Chris Froome, right? And, and uh, uh, Mahorich has been doing it a lot as well. A, a very low, like, tucked over the front, and somehow, I don't know how he still manages to pedal his bike, but yeah. he somehow, like, has the flexibility. Like, talk about flexibility, right? So you, like, you... You get on the top tube and you almost shove your butt underneath the saddle, right? Uh, or... Yeah, and there's variation on that, but Kroom is like further forward. I mean, his, his abdomen's like over the stem almost, okay. right? And his chin is almost down like over the front of the handlebar. So he, he's he's quite low. Um, so anyhow, in, in this study, they actually looked at 15 different positions. And so what they did, which I think is really unique, is they did uh, an actual wind tunnel analysis of four. And then they went and based and they validated a computer model against of those four positions against their wind tunnel data, mm-hmm. and they you know it proved out that it was a good a good simulation a good model. And they went through and did an additional eleven positions to determine which is going to be the fastest position for you to be going down the hill. Okay. Okay. So what uh, do you mind if I ask what lib do you know did they publish what library they used for the simulations? Do you want me to really read through the <laughs> through the uh, well? I know the details. Th- I'm aware of a few different um, simulation libraries. Is all, and I think they're for the most part pretty well done. Yeah, I mean, I will I will defer to later. We'll put in the notes. Okay. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, just looking at their, you know, the data they reported on the comparison between the actual internal data from the position and their mm-hmm. their computational model, like. Okay, that's pretty darn close. Yeah. So, so do you know the percent difference, or I mean, what two, three percent? Yeah. Let's see. We'll bring. We'll bring. I have the paper here on my iPad, so we'll bring it up. Um, you know, with within the error bar. How's that? Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that's usually within three percent. Right. Or, you know, five at the most. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's pretty trivial. Um, and so the the four positions they actually validate in the wind tunnel are so Froome's position. Um, if you've been around cycling a little bit longer, um, you may remember Marco Pantani. He had this like very low off the back of the bike position. So he'd have his hands in the drops and then he'd like, kind of like a mountain biker going downhill, he'd have his like, his abdomen on the seat um, and then his butt tucked down by the rear tire. Okay. So he's like super low and compressed, right? Extended out and compressed down. Um, and then the other positions, like something like we would typically see Bottom on the saddle, hands in the drops, and then it's like really flexed forward. So your chin's almost down to yeah, the, just like chin to stem. Yeah, chin to the stem, exactly. Yeah. Like again, there's like something more traditional, or at least mm-hmm. maybe not traditional per se, but like something you actually see somebody do. And then the fourth position was, I think, what we all expect is a more casual descent, is like still in the drops, but just like bent down to the drops and pretty flat. Yep. Um, nothing, nothing special there. So those were the four that they looked at in the wind tunnel and gathered that data. Um, so then they, and like, okay, so the, the standard horizontal back descending, if your bike fits right and you have decent flexibility, like we're, we're good. I think you, you can get in that position and it shouldn't cause you any discomfort. You can be there for a while. Yeah. I think you're, I'm just looking at that and thinking about what I said about mountain biking, like where's your center of mass relative to the bottom bracket. That's oh, in a pretty good position, right? It's probably relatively close to the bottom bracket. Your bike probably wants to like be ridden that way. I think your bike is going to handle pretty well. Yeah. while you're right there i don't know about the others like <laughs> the pantani position as a mountain biker like okay to me that looks like i'm going down a really steep hill if i'm back that far 
I'm like, okay, I can wrap my head around it, but I don't have a whole lot of weight in the front on the front wheel. So you wonder how that's going to handle. And then the Froome position, that's a lot of weight on the front wheel. All the weight on the front right? wheel. Right? Like, yeah. uh, you wonder how that's going to handle. Um, but, okay, so neither here nor there. And then the other position where you're, like, chin to stem, obviously it's just going to require, like, a little bit more hamstring flexibility than the kind of standard, right? Because you're really dropping that pelvis and dropping yeah. everything. Well, and um, th- what thoracic. Thoracic spine, yeah. yeah. You know, like really hunched down. And also, like, neck extension so you can see where you're going. Yeah, you really got to... I mean, most cyclists have... Um, <laughs> they tend to have pretty good neck extension yeah. because you need to see where you're going. And you do that all day. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a necessary part of riding a bike is to see where you're going, right? It's just, you want to go fast. So then they went through and they tested all these various positions. And I'm, I'm just going to skip to the, the punchline. Cause I think that's what you want to know, right? Like, mm-hmm. well, how do I go fast? That's the important part. And then I'll figure out, then tell me what stretches to do so I can go fast. Right. Um, <laughs> okay. So yeah, so the fun, the fun and interesting thing today is Froome, right? Like, oh, he must be that must be pretty fast. He did, you know, he's won some stages like that. Was, um, actually, not. It wasn't actually the fastest. It was kind of in the middle of the road. Really. Okay, so just a fine position. Yeah, it was acceptable. But uh-huh. the funny thing with him, right, is like he's not that much faster than the like traditional position. Okay. So like, is it really better to be? like that crazy low or should you be doing something more normal um the pontani bottom off the back of the seat hanging out off the back of the bike is actually faster than the frame position oh okay so again like oh, your front wheel it's not got a whole lot of weight on it but mm-hmm. um but so the fastest position that in their test was actually like a little bit like the frame position but imagine so like take that frame position that's crazy far forward and just compress yourself and slide back. So like your back is pretty flat and like your, your hips are underneath the saddle. Okay. Yeah. That was the one that I was thinking of originally. Yep. So that, that's the one I tested fastest. Okay. I don't know. Again, like fast going a straight line. I knew the road and it was very predictable. Okay. I think I can get comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. Boy, if you have to change position real quick. The only, you can't go straight up because you're going to catch your butt on the saddle. So you yeah. have to be able to go forward, which mm-hmm. I you know, think potentially spills trouble for you, um, you know, depending on the situation, right? Like, yeah. So I think that, you know, in NorCal, these, these positions will never be used. <laughs> I no. can't think of a, maybe like Highway 9 um, in South Bay, there's some pretty... There's some, some straight stretches, but I mean, I, I really think you have to get into much bigger mountain like if you got into the sierras right mm-hmm. or you get like you don't see these guys do this in the classics right yeah but in on you know on the big mountain passes and the grand tours you but see, you also the in those mountain passes you see very nice roads like really cut out of the mountain mm-hmm. this is a um so the the road quality is very nice the only thing i'd be concerned with is the wind yeah um, and a crosswind yeah and i think the fruit <laughs> position is definitely more prone to wind issues than the pantani position um from a handling standpoint yeah uh, the wind coming across your front wheel yeah um, it's actually i think it's better to have less weight on your front wheel with the wind um i would generally agree with that and because keeping all your weight onto that back wheel uh, really plants yourself into the bike yeah um, because the front wheel is the fickle one and um what is it like 
if somebody tries to take out your rear wheel, you usually stay up in a crash. That's why uh, they, yeah, they always say um, protect your front wheel because mm-hmm. that's the one that. Um, so you know, keep your weight, keep your body on your back wheel, and that that'll keep you, um, you know, grounded into the bike. Yeah, I think you're. I mean, also just thinking about like where the center of mass wants to be, or uh, where your bike was designed to have your center of mass. Yeah, the engineers right? are assuming right. some, some some things about the rider. They're, they're assuming that you're more or less centered over the bottom bracket within you know a few centimeters mm-hmm. um, fore or aft. But you know, like less you know tighter to that bottom bracket on a more conservative fit and a little more range make maybe a little extending further forward on a more aggressive bike but not i mean not much we're talking on the order of a few centimeters here or there so your your bike's meant to handle best when you're um near that bottom bracket so getting super far forward your bike's probably going to feel funky so it's interesting like to see that this low position over the draped over the bars, you know, chin tucked down, but then butt back, sort of, you know, close to the saddle, yeah, is faster from an aerodynamic standpoint. But it, it also reason to be like looking where the center mass would be. The center mass is less far forward from the bottom bracket, mm-hmm. right? Like Froome's position, your center mass is basically right over your fork, yeah. almost, right? And like this one's like it's in front of the, it's definitely in front of the bottom bracket. But not, not like not so much more than your traditional riding position. Mm-hmm. So, so this um, mm-hmm. the best aerodynamic position is um, it your your weight balance is better. It's pretty awkward to get out of. I've done it before. You have to sort of do this. Yeah, you have to untuck yourself. Right, you have and, to like straighten up and go f- stand up forward. Right from mm-hmm. the from the pedal. And if thing. your core, you have to really engage your core because uh, your front wheel wants to sort of take you off center mm-hmm. uh, when you're getting out of it so i've seen in some of the shorter classics races people will enter that position and then they'll hop out of it right before like a hairpin or something and i mean it's the fastest way to do it as i understand it but um it is always a little bit scary to see them uh try and get out of the position with, you know only you know 30 meters from the right come into a corner and yeah, got at, like at a 35 split whatever. second to get in yeah. and out yeah, and I think right. I think engaging your lats probably a little bit to stabilize yep. the handlebar there, so that it's not. Well, you do it automatically and... because uh, you can feel the bike starting to move, and your body wants you know wants you to survive. Yeah, you, want, you want some <laughs> stability there yeah. right away. So then I think you know just looking at that position, like what's the taking this back to sort of the anatomy piece, right? Like what's the demand um, from a flexibility standpoint if you want to talk about getting into that position. And like being a little bit of a contortionist on your bike okay. there. So honestly, I think the biggest demand there is probably hip mobility, right? Cause you're, you're bringing your knee much, much closer to your chest yeah. in that position than you would normally on your bike. So the, and it's not, not necessarily hamstring flexibility per se, because your knees are bent, right? So your hamstrings have a little bit of slack, but it's more, if it's if there's any joint restriction, like you have any any restriction in the joint, um, labral restriction, femoral impingement sort of things, that was going to be trouble getting down to that position. Mm-hmm. Um, but also any limitations in like gluteal mobility potentially gives you a little bit yeah, of an issue. Yeah, it's like total posterior length issues. Yep, but especially around the hip, okay. right? Like, yeah, because hamstrings really because the knees bent, the hamstrings not going to factor in mm-hmm. um, as much as some other things there, and then like. We said the um, being able to get enough 
cervical neck extension so you can actually see where you're going. Now I think the way they had this modeled was sort of looking down at the front wheel, which is probably not quite practical for the real world, unless you can really like get your eyes up, like looking really high, like and think about like if you're sitting now, like looking up towards the ceiling with just your eyes, hmm. that only gets you to so far, right? Yeah. Like you have your the top of your helmet, you probably have like the rim of your glasses there. So there, there's going to have to be some component of neck extending to be able to see down the road so you can actually you know, know where you're going here. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think that, you know, and then there's got to be some, some arm strength there too, right? Because you're kind of tucked at an end-range position. I think about um, some of the positions in yoga, like as you go in between like a down dog and going, like getting flatter to the floor where you're in that sort of a push-up and you're, you're all the way flexed. So like you're, you're supporting yourself on really flexed arms and now your muscles are in a shortened position. And we've talked about this before, right? Muscles work on a bell curve. In the middle of that bell curve, they're, they're great. They're very yeah. strong. At either end of that curve, eh, they're not so strong. So the ability to maintain that position definitely kicks in. Core, of course, is going to play a role there. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I think getting out of that position is like a little, a little trick. Um, of extending yourself and not yeah. like not catching yourself on the seat. Uh, I, I feel like that could be semi-catastrophic mm-hmm. depending on how caught on the seat you get. Um, and then not putting too much weight on the front wheel while you do that and yeah, causing it to do goofy things. So a few things that I'm thinking of now uh, are like a lot of pro riders really prefer smaller bikes. Mm-hmm. They'll go one to two sizes smaller than they should be. Uh, why? I don't know because they do what they want but um, a big advantage of that is the seat is so much further out of the frame which allows Mm -hmm. them to get under it Mm -hmm. if you're riding the proper size bike you're not going to have enough space Uh, like your your hips are too big to fit under the saddle yeah yeah Um, so maybe maybe we've found out why they go such you know small bikes but um, that's something to think about with um, you know are you descending a lot is that Part of your uh, repertoire as a rider um, and if so you need to be thinking about you know your saddle height relative to your top tube yeah and I mean look at the end of the day you know aerodynamics is nice that's one insight into how does one descend fast but that's you know only true as going in a straight line right yeah it's- so that's what the other thing that I was gonna comment was I notice that I get value out of uh, speed through the corners and I, you know, I think that when you see uh, pro riders who chase down uh, another, you know, someone smashed the climb and now the finish is at the other, at the other side of the descent and, you know, the second or third place rider will just storm and chase down this, uh, this rider who um, did the climb like a minute faster. Um, It's not straight line speed. It's, I took each, I got three seconds at each corner and there's 30 Mm -hmm. corners, you know, and now I caught you. Um, so, you know, the straight line aerodynamics, and sometimes you even see the first person in the group really dive down the descent. And mm-hmm. then you see the second guy hit the, hit the hairpin at a higher speed and get right back up onto their wheel. Yep. Um, so yeah, there's a lot more to, to descending than these positions, but at the same time, um, if you're dropping 2000 feet and half of that is in one straight stretch, like you do need a good position. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I think this is this idea, right. Of, um, 
aggregation of marginal gains, right? Like if you mm-hmm. can put all the pieces together or you can be really aerodynamic and you can make, you know, you can cause your competitors some stress. Like even if it's just you're coasting down a very aerodynamic position and you're opening up a 50 meter gap, right? And now when the road flattens out, they have to do something about that or they're, they're thinking about that um, yeah. and pushing themselves a little bit harder on that descent. That all, that all adds up, especially uh, in a three-week race like a, t- a Grand Tour. You know, maybe for the one-day races that you and I do, that's a trivial, you know, a trivial change uh, tactically. But, you know, those things can add up certainly over a, a longer race. Yeah, and now that I'm thinking about it, um, Taylor Finney had a, a stage win because he just got in his tuck and he's, what, 180 pounds because he's mm-hmm. 6'4". And um, he was able to get away in his tuck and get 15 seconds. And then, of course, he's a good TTer, so we just held on to it. Um, so it can your aerodynamic position can be used as a tactic, uh, but if you're looking at most descents, it's how do I break as late as possible? How do I take carry as much speed through this corner? And how do I get right back up to where I was? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's what's so cool about Froome. I think and um, apparent. I think this is true for a lot of riders. They have this moment where they realize descending is important, and they just descend like a a fiend uh for like a year straight every time they go down a hill they're trying to push the limits and then they get very good at descending and that's something that he has done only the last maybe three or four years i think his first couple tours he was just a fine descender but he started to really get interested in um really using that as a tactical advantage Mm -hmm. of his and i think that that's good and it's not just um it's not just Grand Tour riders or climbers. I think that there's a lot of overlap between descending, cornering and descending, and cornering and crits. Oh, oh my goodness, absolutely. So when I came to NorCal, I came from Pennsylvania, which is like a really big crit scene, and I didn't have trouble descending. I remember like my second group ride, I did Page Mill, and you know got a, a very good time and followed a very good descender down it. And, you know, it feels just like a crit corner, mm-hmm. you know, put your weight into the outside pedal, uh, stick the corner, you know, if it gets tighter, you just stick it harder, uh, sort of thing. And, um, having this sort of, you know, I don't know, this is the gamer side of, um, of cycling. You know, there are, there's the technical side of this is my FTP and I'm stronger than you and, you know, adaptations. And then there's the you know, I'm a good athlete and I know how to control my bike side. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that descending is one of those, uh, like, you know, I'm just a good athlete sort of things. Yeah. And I, I think there's a certain confidence that goes with it, right? It's like, you have to be willing to push it. You have to have pushed it a few times, right? To know and to understand what your bike is actually capable of doing. Mm-hmm. I think most of us probably don't push our bikes to what they're capable of doing because you know our limitation of skill or our fear of falling get in the way before we can really push to the limit of what our tires can do what our frames can do what the brakes are capable of doing right like self-preservation is a very good thing i'm not arguing that it isn't but you know as you come into a corner self-preservation probably kicks in to have you start feathering that brake before the actual need of you to start feathering that brake yeah Um, and then that you know, that little bit of difference, whatever it is, it's three meters going to that corner or five meters or what have you. That's the difference between a a good descender and a great descender. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's that three to five meters on every corner. 
like all the way down to the Sunlight page mill, all the way down a, a massive mountain, like you're doing in a grand tour that all of a sudden adds up that, you know, for one corner, it's nothing. It's like, Oh, it's just a little gap. And then, you know, yeah. 10 miles later, it's 20 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it takes a lot of focus and a lot of practice. And it's something that, you know, we all do our intervals on climbs. If you're lucky enough to have a mountain near your house and you should be practicing your descending too. You want to rest, but you should be practicing planting in just a little bit harder than you did last time. And I think I, I'm not one of those people who always goes one harder, but you get to a point where you're like, okay, this is fast. You know, I don't need, I don't need to go faster than this. And I, there are a few different types of athletes when it comes to descending. I suck at descending. I don't have a lot of confidence. I don't, you know, really control my bike. Um, I, it, you know, I, I think of these people as uh, generally more like power based. They're usually not speed skill based riders. They're usually um, just really strong and um, really focused on FTP. Uh, you know, this is kind of a, a stereotype, but um, that's one type. And the next type is I'm a, you know, I'm a fine descender. I can keep up. You know, I, I, do, I do an adequate job. It's not, yeah. it's neither a strength nor a weakness. And then there are the, um, you know, I'm like a bat out of hell descender and I'm somewhere between the second two. Uh, and I, I wonder if there is value in becoming a, a bat out of hell descender. Um, not certainly not in regional races. Um, it seems like a pretty unique skill set to be able to do that. So I think it's interesting. You said about practicing on the downhills cause that was a, a learning I had, I don't even know, like within the last couple of years, uh, I was actually riding with a, a multiple time national champion cyclocross rider and just, you know, weren't going through a warm up and like, oh yeah, I practice turns for like 15 minutes before I even do anything hard. And it's like, huh, that's in- like, that was very interesting to me to see like, wow, okay, this is like part of your training, right? I, I wouldn't even like, I never even thought about that. Like, I just go out and ride my mountain bike or I go out and ride my cross bike. And yeah, that's part, that's part of it, right? It's like cornering hard is part of it. Like, this is very dedicated. Like, I do X amount you know, left turns. I do X amount right turns. I do X amount figure eights. Like, huh, okay. <laughs> like, I'd never analyzed that at that level. And also, I recently talked to a pro enduro rider and a similar thing about, like, practicing and very dedicated, focused practice. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go out. I'm going to ride a section of trail. You know, I'm focused on, you know, hitting these corners at this speed and in this position and very, very detailed um, about the technical aspects of riding the bike down the hill. And it's like, yeah, you're applying that same, the same thing that uh, an athlete playing baseball would apply to their swing or golf yeah. or, you know, shooting free throws in basketball or the same precision that we're thinking about when we're training our FTP to the technical aspect of your bike riding. Like, okay. Yeah, that's a very different way, you know, and so I've, I've sort of started to think about those aspects of my bike handling in this very, like, practice-oriented way. Like, yes, I'm going to go out, and yes, I'm going to go for a bike ride, I'm going to get a workout, but I'm also going to do this very focused practice on, I'm going to go ride this section of trail five times, and I'm going to, like, have this target, I want to hit this section of the trail, I want to hit this turn this way, and just go through with that repetition to, to hone those skills. Yeah, that's something that I have been struggling with a little bit is uh, even like cadence drills is a very, is the very, it's like the same thing in, in that 
Uh, it's boring. You do it on this random stretch of road on the way to your intervals, but you really need to focus. It's only a five minute drill, but you, you know, keep weight through the whole pedal stroke. Um, and that will make a difference. You do it every day. Um, I had a pretty similar feeling about the uh, focusing, like dedicated practice on a certain aspect of your riding. I was watching, I was sitting in the lobby of the YMCA where I do like a little bit of gym work and there was a kid in the pool who was doing backstroke and he wasn't going anywhere. Uh, he was moving his arms, mm-hmm. he was doing the stroke, but he wasn't you know, gliding through the water like you'd see like a top swimmer. Mm-hmm. And it just sort of seemed like, you know, the, the whole idea of backstroke is you, you kind of pull your arms, you know, you, mm-hmm. you push the water away from you. And he wasn't, he wasn't doing the pushing part. He was just moving his arms through the water. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it kind of clicked of like, there's a difference between doing the motion and doing the stroke. Um, you know, you can walk up the steps, but it's different than, you know, doing something for competition or sprinting up the steps or mm-hmm. whatever, you know, like going through the actions is different than doing the thing. And um, that's kind of, you know, how do I apply this to cycling? That's exactly what you're saying of this dedicated practice of, um, you know, golf golf uh, players will you know, spend so much money and time on a coach to perfect their swim, their swing and swimmers will, you know, go back and make sure that they're, you know, very precise with their stroke. And we don't do that for the most part. It's not really discussed, but um, I think that that's a podcast topic that I'd like to research and present is, um, like pedal efficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, how much energy does your body produce? Like heat, like motion, all this stuff. How much of that goes into your rear wheel mm-hmm. is so incredibly important. Um, uh, so I guess the question is, you know, and you can go back and forth. Like, so is it that the, you know, the, the top riders that I interacted with, was it that they learned this practice by, you know, from coaches or like, is this something like in their work ethic that they took from other sports that made them like, you know, obviously there's many factors, right. That to make a rider uh, top of their class. Mm-hmm. But you know, I, I guess I, the thing I, I wonder about, I can probably ask them is like, where did that start for you? Right. Like, did that start early on because you played some other sport and you're like, Oh, well I should just apply this principle I learned in my other sport to yeah. bike riding, obviously. Cause you know, why not? Or is this something that you got from a, a coach that you worked with and, um, let you know like hey you should actually be practicing this other skill yeah and that's crazy that like i i had a I, this came up today as well of um i was watching someone play chess um on twitch and they were talking about another esports player who wasn't a chess player but the guy the the guy was saying how well this other person was playing chess despite having no chess background they played at like a mid high school level, which that's very good. If you played chess since four to high school, you're, you know, you're sure. Very, so him to come out of the blue and just be high school level chess player, the guy was very surprised. And I was thinking to myself, what skills from your other games apply to this? And it's very simply, um, you know, what is the best action for me and what is my opponent's best response and understanding that, Mm-hmm. And like really deeply understanding that will propel you so far in so many different games. Um, and so the, the transfer of knowledge in that way um, doesn't so much apply to cycling. Tactics are some somewhat helpful, but it's similar. Like, you know, how, how does a swim stroke 
in swimming, you know, how does the knowledge of that transfer to, you know, the pedal stroke in cycling? Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder if these, uh, national champions are former runners where or swimmers or you know something where they talked about the more technical side of this stuff it's 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 unfortunate that it's neglected in cycling and i mean that's why i want to look into it more and see if um you know it's something that is neglected and we should be focusing on more on yeah i definitely think there is a tremendous value in in focused, dedicated practice, certainly on those technical aspects of sport, right? I mean, just to kind of circle back to what we started talking about, about aerodynamics and descending, if you want to get good at descending that aerodynamic position, I think you darn well better go out and practice it, right? Like you better not, you should, you probably shouldn't like read this article and say, yep, I'm going to do that in my next race and then go out and do it in the race. Like you should probably go out and practice on an open road and get a feel for it and see how your bike feels when you're in that position, see how your body feels, see how fat, how long it takes you to get out of it. How does the bike respond? Yeah. All those little things, uh, and use that as an opportunity to practice so that when you do need to do it in a race, you're comfortable with it. You know you can do it. You can do it with your eyes closed. Don't do that, but that you could, <laughs> um, and you'd be comfortable and know how the bike's going to respond. Yeah, and, and then on that topic, getting the most value out of your ride. Um, like, for us, we have Alpine Road, which is a false flat down for like seven minutes. That's a great place to practice this aerodynamic position. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, that's the same road that most people take home after at the end of the ride so are you going to be the rider who practices their aerodynamic position while you know just getting home after their intervals or are you going to be the rider who says ah, i'm kind of tired you know i'll just cruise just gonna blindly ride home yeah um these two different riders have a different trajectory oh absolutely um, yeah and so if if you're excited to do well um hopefully you'll be the one that tries to get the most value out yeah, of their time squeeze that little bit more out of it you're gonna be yeah. out there anyhow right it's so tough to do though if uh if i if i can give my personal opinion <laughs> yeah oh yeah to, to squeeze that little bit extra yeah. out when you're already tired when you you put in a good interval ride and say like, okay i'm just gonna do that little bit extra and do that little bit extra technical work yeah and uh, but also you know you that little bit extra you can find that in your life every day you know like oh it'd be great to get an extra half hour of sleep it'd be great to get an extra you know, you can add, you know, your, your diet, your sleep, your um, yeah, workouts, I mean, all this stuff. I think that's something I see as a physical therapist all the time with patients, right? Is like a patient comes into me, they have this problem. And a lot of times I'm recommending some exercise intervention for them. And it's like, well, I need 15 minutes of your day, right? I need 15 minutes of your day to help you get better and you need to do this. And so it's always interesting having that discussion with people like, huh? Yeah. Do I have, do I have 15 extra minutes? And it's like, well, it is it's for your health like yeah i, I hope the answer to that question is yes but it's so but, hard to lay on the floor and do the exercise that you want um yeah. in you know at whatever 10 o'clock at night when you just want to go to bed and, and so wake up tomorrow I, I i appreciate the challenge right and saying like yes i understand that we can all say it but i also appreciate like being the person who's assigning people the things to do most of the time like I totally understand that challenge for people like, yeah, it's hard sometimes to find that extra 15 minutes, even though you have good night, you came to see a physical therapist in the first place. Yeah. Right. Like, so you were, you were motivated to create some change and you'd feel better, but to find that 15 minutes is sometimes tough because we, we are, we're all busy. It's yeah. sometimes a challenge. And that's, so we talked about stretching at uh, one of the episodes and I think sometimes though it's my personal opinion maybe don't do the workout and stretch instead and you might get more adaptation more value um everybody has these big you know going to see the pt is the equivalent of 
doing my intervals. This is the big thing that I can definitely do that will make me better. And, you know, yes, there's other things that you're neglecting that will also really help you. Mm-hmm. Um, making and, sure you get good sleep, making sure you eat yeah. well. Yeah. There's so there's If you get so three hours things. of sleep every night, you know, doing, hitting your intervals is not going to do anything. Yeah. And I think, I think to your point, uh, and this is, now we're going to go off on tangent here, but I think to your point, you know, like, it's okay to skip that scheduled interval ride if you didn't sleep well last night, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're, you're not going to get your value out of it. So have a recovery day, like slop your recovery day and your interval day and, you know, yep. get, get on with it. Like you, you do only have so many hours in the day, so you should maximize them. And if you can't control everything, if you had a big work deadline, you didn't sleep well, you know, unless you're a pro cyclist, like you, you don't get to mm-hmm. control those things. And so, you know, be, be willing to adapt on the fly a little bit, even though like, I was psyched to do that interval workout today, but I slept four hours last night. It's not going to go well for you. It's really, it's yeah. just, it's not. So I think um, counter to your uh, idea on this, I would say, um, you know, say you messed up your breakfast, like you had an early morning meeting and you thought they were going to bring donuts, you know, and uh, they didn't. And so, you know, you, whatever, you have a workout right after work and your fueling for the day is bad. Um, go do your best. Get on your bike. Go start the intervals and know that you're underfueled and know that you need to stay on top of your on-ride fueling. Um, but don't skimp, you know, don't say, oh, it's not perfect. I won't do the ride. Fair, fair. I guess, I guess there's different, I don't know. I, I guess I'd put different classes around things of like why like where, or where you draw a line on um, doing or not doing. So for me personally, talked about this, heart rate variability is sort of helps me in that mm-hmm. decision, right? Of like, Hey, I didn't sleep well. What's my heart rate variability look like? That's ah, actually, it's okay. Like, all right, no, I'll go, I'll go do that. Or like I slept, I slept poorly. My heart variability is, is not very good. You know what? I think it makes sense to postpone yeah. this hard ride today for another day. This is the tension of, you know, training is, do I push through it? Mm-hmm. Do I, um, you know, bag it and try again later? And it's, you know, the prompt is what's more valuable for me right now. Yep. And on, so, okay, now that, uh, this is the last tangent, then we'll move on to my topic. But, um, the reason I said donuts at the early morning meeting, I've had so much success with like munchkins before my morning ride. Um, like it's really easy to eat. Yep. It's a lot of carbs and sugar. Yep. Um, it's like for me, pretty light on the stomach. Um, and then, you know, the fat is also, you know, you're going to use that fat as well. You are, uh, so I guess I get to say what I have before my morning workouts now. Okay. Um, so I think I go maybe a little healthier. Uh, <laughs> so I, I make a little shake. Um, I take a, a cup. I don't do dairy, so I use almond milk or some alternative milk. But if you're a dairy fan, by all means, uh, go for dairy. If you want to do 2%, I think that's a reasonable substitute. Um, I take about three quarters of a cup of rolled oats for my source of carbs there. Uh, I have a banana and then I have a little, like a tablespoon or so of peanut butter. And I, I always throw like just a little, a little protein powder on top there. Um, I blend that together in the blender. And that's, again, that's pretty light. I've got some carbs, some like really easy to access kind of sugary carbs from that but, banana. So you're also like six, three. Yeah, right. So you, okay. you, you scale this uh, per weight, right? Yeah. Um, and like I have some little protein, I have some longer chain carbs in the oats, I have a little fat from mm-hmm. the peanut butter. 
but like you can imagine there's many permutations of this if you want almond butter if you want cashew butter if you don't want a banana you can put an apple like um so you could yeah. expand this for anybody's palate uh, that that really works well for me and i've done that for a long time when i have a, an early morning workout that i'm going to do i've also i found um muesli everybody says i pronounce mm-hmm. it wrong um that's also really nice make it in uh beforehand maybe put some honey on top that seems to be pretty light on my stomach and it's a good balance between too simple or too heavy uh Mm -hmm. like oatmeal if you'd use like still cut oatmeal that can take three hours to digest uh you muesli is you know two hour and a half donuts is like i'm gonna ride instantaneous yeah (laughs) yep and um yeah it's just interesting that you know at chico i did really well in the p1 p1 race and yeah, I had munchkins every morning. Um, so so there was a study we'll have to talk about another time okay. that looked at athletic recovery. And basically, it, it's kind of funny because basically what they did is one group did their, their bike-based workout and had like the normal recovery thing, four to one, carbs, protein, great. And then the other group had fast food, uh, similar caloric content. And then they, you know, did a, a follow-up test and then a crossover design. And lo and behold, the outcome was the same. The athletes yeah. performed equally. So, you know, our, our bodies are pretty good at making use of what we give it. You know, mm-hmm. there may are there better things that we can give it? Probably. But, you know, in a yeah. pinch or, you know. So are, are we holding off on this? or do we... I think, we should, yeah, we should hold okay. off on this one. So I think we go down the rabbit hole and not get to talk about Because I have a couple studies to, uh, to hit back at you with. So, All right, it's, um, it's science. So we'll that's... take notes on this. Uh, if you're interested, this will, will be a later Oh, yes, episode. this will definitely come back. <laughs> um, so my topic is actually uh, cycling shoe. Um, how do I pick a cycling shoe, basically? Uh, the main reason for this is I had to buy new cycling shoes. And the main reason for that is because I had really bad pain on my pinky toe three hours into a ride, most rides. And uh, basically, I went to see a fitter. I said, yeah, this is bothering me. Um, I was seeing him for saddle issues anyway. And he said, okay, let me put you on the, uh, you know, the foot measuring thing. And he was like, oh, you're your width is 44 in terms of you should be wearing a 44 shoe. This mm-hmm. is European sizing, but your length is like a 42. Uh, so you can get 44 shoes and you know, your toes will not go anywhere near the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, we, we could just move the cleats down or you can get a, a certain brand that has wider shoes in your correct size. Um, so then that started me down the rabbit hole of, you know, what's up with shoes, the width, the whatever, power transfer. So we're just going to start talking about this stuff. And um, the first thing that we talk about is uh, just basic, you know, say you don't have much experience with shoes. What are you looking for? Why are some shoes more expensive? You know, what's going on here? So, um, you know, hopefully at this point you have cleat, um, you know, a cleat pedal system that clips you in. So, you know, one big thing is, does your cleat system match the holes in the bottom of the shoe? So most are the three, the triangle, um, three-hole system. Speed plays are a four-hole system. I used to use speed plays a lot, and I don't anymore. Uh, So we'll probably get to the point where we talk about um, why I moved away from speed plays. But even if you have a three-hole system, 
there's usually an adapter to a That's four true. or a two hole system in most cases. Yeah. Like you can usually have some little adapter plate that you'll put on the bottom of the shoe to make it work. Yep. So um, the big difference in shoe quality is the, the biggest is the sole. So lower end soles will be plastic, higher end soles will be carbon fiber, and the stiffness factor will increase as you get a more expensive shoe. So why do you want a more stiff shoe? The marketing team will tell you it's because you get better power transfer um, through your foot into the pedal, which you know of course goes then to your rear wheel, which goes into the road. So, um, you know the the highest end shoes have a stiffer carbon fiber sole. So even bet- if between two carbon fiber shoes, you'll get you know a higher modulus carbon fiber, uh, which means that it won't deflect as much under the same load. Um, and it seems to be from this perspective, you get what you pay for, I would say. Um, and the other things that you could be looking for is the upper material. So the upper is the name of the, um, the thing that goes above your foot. Um, and so most shoes are synthetic at this point. Some people like their kangaroo leather, although it's definitely heavier than synthetic. Um, when I played soccer, kangaroo leather was the, uh, you know, the creme de la creme. Um, Gives you that extra spin on the ball. Yeah, or whatever. Um, leather shoes are comfy, for In, sure. Indeed, yeah, and um, they they mold to your foot over time, right? They yeah. tend to fit to you a little bit. So that's the thing about high-end high uppers are really stiff, which also helps if you're lifting your foot. You, there's no... Uh, you know, sometimes you your foot almost like exists inside mm-hmm. of like a little bubble in your shoe if you can't get it to close quite right, and so that that effect can be more pronounced if the upper is not as stiff. Um, but coming with the stiffness and the synthetic nature of the upper also doesn't allow it to conform to your foot. Mm-hmm. So sometimes there's a little bit of a balance there, and um, you don't always want the most expensive, stiffest upper, you know, fancy schmancy thing because it's it's not really what you're looking for. Um, and then the other thing is the closure system. Uh, there's uh, lower end stuff is like Velcro or they'll have um, like strips that have, um, yeah, uh, and then you, you, know, you lift a lever and click, click, click. Um, and then higher end stuff is um, steel cable closures and there's one brand, BOA, which is sort of the industry standard. They seem to be doing a lot of good stuff. Um, and those are nice because they're lighter, but also um, the closure system is actually cheap to manufacture. So when they first came out, I was working at a bike shop and everybody was like, whoa, what is what is this brand? What's going on? And they had a rep come and just give us like 100 BOA closures. And they were like, oh, yeah, they're like, you know, whatever, X cents to make. So just take a bunch. And if somebody says theirs doesn't work, just give them a new one. And, you know, they make their money off off selling to the manufacturer rather than you know, like the, the license to use our product mm-hmm. rather than, so, um, they don't normally go bust too quickly. Uh, they do, they definitely go bad. Um, the closure systems because they are lightweight and stuff, but it's usually pretty easy to find a replacement. Uh, and you can just, you know, unclip them out, clip them in. And I think the gradation with those, right. is a little bit finer than the ratcheting levers in many yeah. cases, right? So you can fine tune your fit of the shoe. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit better than with the ratchets. Yep. And then the only other thing uh, in terms of basic stuff is rubber on the bottom versus uh, flat. I call them flat bottoms, but um, 
mountain bike shoes and I believe so do cyclocrossers just use mountain bike shoes correct okay so uh, road shoes are they'll have like a heel rubber and maybe a tiny toe rubber Mm -hmm. uh, but otherwise are are flat on the bottom and uh, mountain bike shoes if you know more about you know you can stand in them you can walk around yeah you can I mean and there's a range of mountain bike shoes from like the more cross-country or cyclocross oriented folks that have it's like basically a road shoe with a a little bit of rubber on it um, that goes around the cleat and gives you some ability to walk and like grip the terrain to something that looks more like a skateboarder's shoe that has a groove for the cleat in it and it's it's not as stiff and you could walk walk in it pretty easily Um, so now on to a little bit more about like, how do I say this more advanced, uh, features of shoes or, or considerations. Um, one big thing is weight. High end shoes tend to be lighter. And the idea behind that is the, uh, the inertial load of the shoe. Um, so if you go back to physics 101, uh, something moving in a circle is always accelerating. So, um, the the weight of the shoe at a distance from the center of ax from the axle center, yeah center rotation yeah that that has a a certain amount of energy that needs to be put into it to maintain it so if that mass is heavier then it's more energy that has to go into it so uh, generally you want something lighter uh, a lot of the high end shoes the uppers will be lighter the soles will be a little thinner that's why the carbon fiber is better it'll be the, you need less material to get stiffness mm-hmm. out of it. Um, but at the same time, your leg is also rotating about this. Um, <laughs> you know, so yes, the, the, the relative amount of weight that you're adding to your leg yeah. and the difference between two pairs of shoes on that mm-hmm. is you know, probably relatively trivial. Right. The so calculation. there's, um, I, so I haven't done the calculation, but the, a lot of marketing material, you know, it's like, one one hundred ninety six grams, twelve percent lighter than our closest competitor. It's not as significant as you want it to be. Um, you you know the yeah, no. how much how much do you weigh? Yeah, um, how much? Yeah, how much does your leg weigh? And you know, humble brag, I did a DEXA scan. I have you know twenty pounds of mass on each leg of muscle mass. Uh, you know what is what is a quarter pound? Um, especially the difference between getting that, that muscle mass to work properly mm-hmm. versus not, you know, um, the other big one that we're going to spend some time talking about is width. So that's the initial reason why I had to get new shoes. I was using specialized S work shoes. Those were, they call them European cut or Italian cut, which is code for super narrow, <laughs> not American. Yeah. And, um, I speculated they likely made their shoes narrower. I, I used to not have this issue, but um, I believe they've started making their shoes narrower, likely to have better marketing for the weight. There goes our specialized sponsorship. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you have to be careful with the manufacturer that you get, and um, sometimes they um, they pad their stats uh, a little bit with uh, making a narrower shoe. Now you have less sole material or less upper material. Probably less of both. Yeah. So well, yeah. <laughs> um, so width is interesting. The only reason, now that I'm looking back at um, the way that I should have known that my shoes were too narrow, I when I got a fit, I had um, the bottom of my feet mapped, the, the pressure mapping. Mm-hmm. So you put this little insert in your shoe and you pedal 
and the insert records where you're pushing down on the pad. And I only had weight on my first and fifth metatarsals. And since my shoe, I was making an arch mm-hmm. between um, basically the shoe is too narrow and is pushing, um, you know, second, third, and fourth up. Yeah. And, then, yeah make, yep. and the reason that I think this also affected my fit was because I had so much weight on the first metatarsal that I had an incorrect motor pattern. Um, basically, you, you know, imagine standing only on the very inside, inside. of your mm-hmm. foot instead of the ball of your foot. Um, so I should have known from that. If any of you have um, a fitter who does foot pressure mapping, you can check this stuff. Um, I was surprised that he didn't notice. It seems kind of intuitive that that would be the result of that, why I wouldn't have weight across the whole. Yes. I, I'm, I'm just trying to think through, like, what are the other possibilities of only having weight? I mean, I guess you could, like, you could have some... It's like the structure of your foot could be such, but then you would observe that, right, in, yeah. outside of the shoe. So uh, in terms of width, um, there's some shoes that are recommended for you know, non-Italian cut uh, feet. <laughs> <laughs> so I was recommended Shimano and Physique. Um, those were the two that are generally more American cut. They are, they, they are heavier. Um, Shimano is slightly narrower than Physique. Um, Physique is also a little bit shorter. Um, so it's like relative size, like a 44 in a Physique would be a shorter shoe than a 44 in a Shimano. Yes. Um, and the, the reason that I actually got the second level Physique and the reason for that was because the upper was more conforming, mm-hmm. not as stiff. Um, so over time... I've only used it for about a week now, but I can already tell the upper is is coming around to my foot shape. Um, the other reason is that you would pick a particular shoe is, in terms of width is the closure system, the way that the closure system sits around mm-hmm. whatever your problem area is. So my issue was the outside of my foot, the closure system puts weight down on the metatarsals mm-hmm. instead of squeezing them mm-hmm. together. So... Uh, depending on what your issue is, if you're looking for a new pair of shoes and you already have shoes, you probably know what you don't like about it. And the, the bike shop employees seem to be knowledgeable on what shoes were, you know, oh, it's a, it's the outside of the foot problem. You know, this closure is going to be a little bit better. Um, the other thing that I noticed was that, um, the closure systems that were flatter, um, like in the same plane of the shoe no so like the strip the the upper closure system the one closer to your ankle Uh was like a inch and a half width band okay that was connected to a boa system Mm -hmm. so you know you get the same closure but the the load is spread out wider Mm -hmm. that seems to be a lot more comfortable than um something like the specialized is just two steel cables really like the downward pressure is just um the uh you know pressure is force over area right yeah so um but you know uh you have to figure out what works for you and um so i think another thing just to throw in here is like if you look i have have a wider foot so like for me it's like super important to find the right pair of shoes and 
some if some shoes that are advertised as wide are actually more you'll learn are more like high volume um but the so this to be a, a wide shoe and adequately support like if your foot is wide like mine to adequately support a wider foot you need the sole of the shoe to be wider from point to point right and that's that's one problem to solve you, your foot should stay over the sole yes it, exactly so the what you're saying is some just make more up more space in the upper more upper and that that solves a problem actually for a different person if you have a really high arch then you do need you need a shoe that has more upper so it's it's taller and it conforms in that dimension but you may not need a wider sole of the shoe and if you have a wide foot then you need a wider sole but you don't necessarily need more more height can fool you into solving that problem right it's like oh it's not squeezing my foot because it the height deformed into width but your yeah. foot's still hanging off the edge of the sole and that's no good mm -hmm. so um the way that you figure out if the shoe is the correct width for you is you have to stand up and put your basically stand on one foot on the ball of your foot yeah. and see how the shoe deforms because uh, your foot is shaped differently with your body weight into it um, and basically you want both your first metatarsal and the fifth metatarsal to stay within the width of the sole mm -hmm. when you push all the way down. Um, and, uh, the other thing that I, I noticed about wide shoes is, um, it depends on where you're wide. Some people have issues with the toe box not being mm -hmm. big enough. Some people have metatarsal width, which is where the toes meet the foot, the, the joint. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, like, for example, I have really narrow, I have like normal heels mm -hmm. as in I have a strong, like a very V shaped foot. Um, so some shoes will be made for someone, you know, they'll be sort of tight in the heel mm -hmm. and then wider. And some will just be wide across the board. Other ones will be not really that wide, but just have a lot of toe space. Yep. Um, so you, the, you know, the, the biggest thing is try on, I tried on 10, 12 pairs of shoes uh, before I found the ones I wanted and you put them on, you stand up in them, you look at how they deform, um, you feel where the pressure is. And if that pressure will get more annoying over time, because of course they're going to feel good in the shop because you just put them on and you know, there's not a problem, but are they going to feel good after four hours? The other thing that I've, I've always done with shoes is when I put them on, I try to put a little bit of load on my foot um, before I tighten it. So like I'll, mm. I'll put my foot up on a stool or on a bench or something and like shift my weight onto that foot that I'm fastening the shoe. Uh, just so then like my foot is going to take on the shape that it takes when it has some load. So I get an appreciation of how, how I'm going to need to tighten the shoe yeah. when I'm actually putting some force through the foot. That's a really good point. And on the, now, I, I guess I can ask you, uh, what is your what is your methodology for tightening? I just tighten them till they're like kind of tight. And if I'm doing a track race, very tight. Um, so I go snug, right? Like not trying to cut off circulation anywhere. Okay. Um, and then like, so I sort of have the similar problem to you, right? Is that my foot tapers. So it's like, it's, it's fairly wide in the front, but then narrow in the back. So mm -hmm. I gotta make sure that I'm tight enough. So I'll usually like, Tighten it snug, and then I'll, I'll tighten the one around the ankle. Um, maybe one extra click. Make sure my heels doesn't want to slide like or come up. Just make okay. sure that that's firm there. Um, but 
yeah, it's not like I will tighten the this lever first and that lever. Yeah. It's not like tightening chain ring bolts or stem bolts where you do a cross pattern or anything. So I was told to tighten from the bottom up. Generally, that's what they say. Um, but other than that, yeah, it's uh, you'll figure out what's comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, other stuff to think about with shoes is um, laces. We do. So I can get stuck in my chain. <laughs> but, but no, I know there's some very high-end shoes that have laces now. Yeah, so the it's it's really common for a manufacturer to make a second-tier laced shoe, and I I've owned lace shoes, and you know because I played soccer when I was younger, it's fun to lace up, you know. Um, but there are definitely a lot of disadvantages. I I would say the the one main advantage, uh, other than that, like being it, it's a very classic. Um, you know, like traditional uh, shoe style and, um, you know, it feels cool to do it and, you know, you feel like a retro cyclist, but um, one, you can't change the system while you're riding. Um, that's the biggest problem. The An advantage, though, is the aerodynamics are better for a laced shoe. And you, most of them come with a, a really wide rubber band for you to put over the mm-hmm. laces and Actually, a lot of the closure systems aren't very aerodynamic. They're usually like cylinders, knobs, yeah, yeah, or knobs or something. And um, you know, I if it's a if it's a fast race, I'll be wearing uh, shoe covers anyway. But um, I think that you know, indoor track cycling, you can't wear um, shoe covers because shoe covers are not a non-essential uh, clothing item. Because and but the reason you can wear them outside is because you could be cold. Uh, even though it's an you know 85 degree summer day, so um, indoor track cyclists could get an advantage from laced shoes, um, if you know. And those are fast races as well. But other than that, you should probably stick to uh, steel cable closures or ratchet systems. I would say. Yeah, I think that's convenient ease. Uh, a few other things. Um, Women-specific shoes, uh, I don't believe there are women-specific shoes necessarily. Uh, uh, <laughs> and I mean that in a marketing sense. Um, they are marketed as women-specific shoes, but um, there's you can, you can all buy the same shoes. The only advantage of a women-specific shoe is that they can go to a smaller size. And so if you get the women's S-Works, it'll go down to a smaller size than the men's version. But um, no, there's no uh, gender specific uh, differences between the shoes other than the aesthetics. Yeah, at, at some level, a 42 is a 42 is a 42. Yeah. Not, but now in the US, we have to differentiate between men and yeah, women's sizes yeah, for some that. reason. I like that um, they're pretty no nonsense with cycling shoes. It's like, yeah, it's European. You know, yep. This is what it is. Um, I think that's, uh, oh, the, the only last topic and this could actually take a little bit of time is, um, let's talk about arch support. What's <laughs> going on with the arch? What do you do? I've had custom insoles before. I would not recommend custom insoles. Oh, well, I'm curious now why. So, um, I, I got the custom insoles that are, um, it's some sort of thermoplastic polymer mm-hmm. that. You know, in the bike shop, you put them under some light and you wait yeah, 10 you minutes. You heat it, you mold it to your shoe, your foot. Yep. And um, then, you know, you cut it to size and you put it in your yep. shoe. And yep. 
The reason that I had a bad experience is because it actually reinforced the incorrect motor pattern. Um, the, the molding part is let's stand on one foot on this insole. Yeah, that's not, I, oh, okay. So I guess that, yes, that's not ideal if you want to correct something in your foot, right? But why do you get custom insoles? Because, you know, you have, you have a foot problem. You have a knee problem. Uh, uh, right. I, I th- well, look, I think there's two, two sides to this. I think there's, you could say, I'm going to stand on one foot. I'm going to mold it to my foot. So it's maximally comfortable and it takes the shape of my foot. Right. Like that's the idea of say a memory foam mattress, right? It molds to the shit contour of my body and it's maximally comfortable in theory. Mm-hmm. Now, I think what you're saying, and I think where I come from is like, well, yeah, I'm getting an insole cause my foot is doing something funky that's either inefficient or causing me some pain and discomfort. And what I actually want to do is have someone look at that and say like, Oh yeah, look, I see that, you know, your arch is dropping here and that's causing your knee to swing in. And no wonder you have medial knee pain because you're, you know, you're in knee valgus for the, you know, for your entire pedal stroke and yep. blah, blah, blah. So let's fix the, you know, fix the navicular drop. Let's give you some extra support in that arch. And now you're going to feel better. That's exactly what I was going to say. So like, <laughs> yes, I think like I, I totally buy that. Um, so I think then there's a step in there where you need to have someone trained, whether that's a chiropractor, a physical therapist, a podiatrist, an MD, athletic trainer, whoever, uh, to assess your foot posture, I probably assess your fit at some level, right? And like assess your foot posture and say like, oh yeah, I see you have this symptom that you're telling me about on your bike. I see this, um, positional fault or movement fault or whatever you want to call it. That's potentially that is somehow linked. Hopefully you could observe it, right? Like squat for me, like, okay, yes, I see where your foot's collapsing in. I see how that's causing your knee to move, you know, out of plane. This is what we're also observing on your bike. Let's connect the dots. I now understand if we could now let's, you know, try to correct that, maybe do something. So in my PT practice, the way I go about is I usually like tape somebody's foot first just to do like a crude test. Like, okay, I think I see this. Let me see if I can tape your foot to mimic that support and let's redo this functional mm. assessment. Oh, hey, that looks better, right? That by fixing your foot, we fixed your knee, right? Now your knee tracks better. Great. Then to me, that's like a green light of, okay, let's, let's go down this road of orthosis. There seems to be some value here. Okay. Um, and then, right, then you go down the road, you, you have somebody that is capable of making you a custom orthosis and then you get that fitted into your cycling shoe. And in theory, like life is good from that point on. Hmm. And then, so other people though, it's, it's more complicated. And this goes back to the, do you want to fit or do you want to fix your body? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that, you know, sometimes like you said, uh, Oh my, I just need more support. So give me more support. Oh, we're good to go. Mm -hmm. Other times you just don't have a muscle. You, there's a muscle that's just not firing. Right. And, uh, if you got it to fire, you wouldn't need a right. fit. You, you know, you'd be fine. And I think that's the other interesting thing about like, okay, so your, you know, your arch is collapsing. Well, there's a muscle that controls that. Mm-hmm. So do you put an insole in your shoe or do you train that muscle or do you put an insole, right? You, you put the insole in the shoe and that's your long-term solution. You just, you're not going to train the muscle 
or do you put the insole in the shoe knowing that's a short-term solution until you make that muscle strong enough now that's a short-term solution that's your band-aid to get rid of your symptoms so you continue riding and training meanwhile you're training that muscle so you can ultimately you know train without that and i will say like my experience with bike shoes is when i started riding like they kind of put wafers in there for uh for insoles and i think the manufacturers have gotten a lot better like actually putting a reasonably supportive insole in there Mm. some are better than others um but i do i think like my first pair of bike shoes i end up getting like some aftermarket not custom just off the shelf inserts you're like what what is that thing that's in there it's a flat piece of foam that can't possibly do anything Mm -hmm. and coming from a running background that was like crazy like what what is this in this shoe yeah um running shoes always have something in there so I guess uh, my own experiences and, you know, so what is your recommendation? I, I've had success in just, you know, specialized specifically here. I'm, I'm getting our sponsorship back. <laughs> um, they have three heights. Yep. So low arch, mid arch and high arch. And they use a, um, it's called thermochromatic uh, board. So it, it changes color with heat and yeah, you stand on it. Yep. Uh, if you have a low arch, it gets heated all the way if you have a high arch it doesn't um so you step off and the green board turns red where your foot was standing and uh, they see how much surface area your foot touched and theoretically although now that we're talking about it you should be standing on one foot to really simulate the weight through the pedal like uh, yeah maximal yeah Yeah. um but you know staying on two feet is probably close enough and uh basically you look at the total surface area that's touching and Mm -hmm. then that tells you what your arch is approximately and hopefully it matches one of their pictures and Mm -hmm. then they say okay you're low medium high and then um you buy it and you put it in your shoe and are you good is is that it i've had i think i've had success it's you know how much is my arch affecting me i don't have arch pain i don't really have foot pain other than this uh the width issue but an arch issue or you know a, a, an issue at the foot doesn't necessarily have to manifest itself in the foot okay right like the foot is your connection to the bike at the pedal but if something's happening at the foot there's excessive motion in the foot that can manifest itself at an ankle it can manifest at a knee right so there's other places that that can um, present itself so i can tell you personally like my i do not have very good control of my arch should be better um so like the the muscle that controls is not not my strongest suit um so if i have off the shelf insoles that can give me some art support if i like if i ride without those for long enough my foot won't hurt but my knee will because it's allowed my knee down to collapse into a valgus and it's put a a valgus stress on my knee Mm. so i know like it's like these two competing things like well I'll do the exercises a little bit to like keep the muscles stronger. And the funny part is like when I was in college and I wore flip-flops a lot, like actually my arch was pretty good. Yeah. Um, Cause I had, I was in like non-supportive shoes all the time as a college student, but then yeah, not, not anymore. Um, so. And then um, on this topic, do you, what makes you go faster? And this was the other thing with the, um, the mm-hmm. weight stuff. Uh, like how heavy is your shoe? Um, a heavy shoe that's comfy that you can put the watts down in will always be faster than this super light, super stiff shoe. Um, so, you know what, theoretically you want a fully functioning body, but if you can turn off your arch and you don't have pain, you can still smash those pedals. It's going to be faster. Uh, yeah. It's, it's in the day. I, mean, I think it's what feels right. 
is the is the answer um yeah it's what yeah if you're comfortable then you'll make yourself more uncomfortable right yeah uh, you can hurt yourself more if you're not hurting other places exactly you know? yeah it's like you have you have a deeper well to draw from yeah well i think not even that it's almost um you know if you're dysfunctional and your shoes are causing you to be dysfunctional like it doesn't matter how much energy you have this is what i noticed about the foot pain is like I have energy, but I have no desire to push down on that pedal because it hurts. Mm-hmm. Like it's a, it's this acute pain, uh, and that's something you know. Now that we're on the topic, acute pain is something to a reason to bag a workout. Um, and you should know the difference between my legs are burning because I'm doing this VO2 max interval versus I have this sharp pain in the wrong spot that I need to make sure doesn't you know become something worse. Yeah, and I think. You, know, you have to respect pain as a, the way I think I like, think about it is it's like the check engine light in your car, right? You you have pain in your body. It's that light coming on. It doesn't mean you've broken something yet. It doesn't mean you're beyond repair. But right, you know, with your car, if you keep driving for another ten thousand miles, the check engine light on, hmm. good things are not going to happen. Yeah, um, it's the same thing with your body. You start to have pain in your foot, in your knee, in your hip, wherever. Like, you should inspect that, right? It's it's there. The alarm bell's going off. You should you should take some time and you should inspect that and you know service it, if you will, um, and and get it back to where it needs to be, so you don't have pain when you're riding. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think uh, that's shoes uh, in terms of performance shoes. Uh, shoes plus a little bit more. Yeah. Um, I you know. The, the only other thing we could talk about, if you're interested, is uh, what, you know, I, I'm sort of, um, people are uh, talking about stiffness of shoes and whether there's value in it. And it's the same conversation as the stiffness in bikes and is there value in it. And I read one article where they said, um, the bike is a closed system. You know, your only contact with the outside world is the two little patches, mm-hmm. which is the true. Two t- tires, yeah. Yeah, the two little patches on your tires. And basically what they said is stiffness um, is not useful because the energy, you know, like you deflect the bottom bracket, the energy is still in the system. Mm-hmm. Um, but my counter argument to that would be, um, but it's not... It's not going to forward motion. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, the, the only energy that's valuable to you is pushing back on the rear tire. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see this, it's called a hysteresis loop, which is, um, basically like the deflection of the tire, um, during a cyclic motion or, you know, just deflection off, um, center. And the hysteresis loop is basically the bigger the circle, the more energy is lost, mm-hmm. um, if you map it. So, um, this is, you know, Continental's big, uh, thing about why their tires are better. They have a very small hysteresis loop and that's why the rolling resistance is low. Or, you know, not why, but that's, you know, the same thing, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you deflect the bottom bracket, you have a big hysteresis loop if you look at the system. And, you know, does this apply to cycling shoe soles? And I almost want to say no, because you're, how much are you deflecting the sole is the question. Well, where is it going? Right, like into yeah. the pedal. Right. Yeah. So your, you know, your center of pressure on your foot should be directly over the pedal anyway. So, so does the, 
does the soul deflect? Um, I don't have the answer to this. I'm sure we could uh, pull up a study where they gave people cycling shoes of different stiffnesses and uh, measured the so, power at the foot and power at the pedal. I guess right? I, was, I also think there's a comfort component to like, have you ever ridden a bike for a long distance in tennis shoes? Like even a short distance and tried to go fast? It yeah. It doesn't feel awesome. Yeah. So because like you're, you're, I don't think your foot wants to push in that. Like I, I think the stiffness of the shoe like, somehow has a little bit of a protective effect for your foot. Okay. I'm not sure about this, but I just like intuitively from like riding in tennis shoes every now and then, like I go like just like ride a short distance on the way like to or from work to the train station, like hmm. this is miserable. Yeah, so I wonder if this stiffness also helps take load off your foot as a whole. Yeah, I think that. So that's that's sort of my thinking about a stiffer shoe. But there's probably a a peak. Like once like you get to a certain stiffness, that effect stops. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, does this deflection piece pick up? And if so, is how meaningful is that in performance? Yeah. So I wonder if it's just like this feels better because it's stiffer, or if there's an actual performance benefit. Um, I guess at this point the jury's still out, but maybe we'll do a little little research on that yeah. one and see what we can come up, come back with. Um, do you, Do you want to posit a, an estimate on watts if we can find it? Um, I want to. All these things are like five watts, right? Um, oh, I, I'm sure it's very small. Yes. Yeah. So I would say um, between a carbon fiber sole versus the be- like the the flagship carbon fiber sole is four watts. So you're saying a middle of the road carbon fiber sole versus the best. Carbon. Yeah, you see a four watt difference okay. due to deflection. All right. Why don't we just go a little bigger? Well, that's it. okay. So we'll take that as a as one estimate, and then let's say like flagship carbon fiber sole and a sneaker, just for. Oh, that's. Uh, I mean, sixty, like twenty. Per- I I was told twenty percent. Oh, I don't think it's that much. We'll see. The so I when I worked in a bike shop, we were told to tell people twenty to thirty percent difference in power transfer. It probably also depends if you get toe clips and straps for the tennis shoe too. Yeah. Okay. Nope. I'm sticking with sixty watts. I bet versus tennis right. shoes, it's probably sixty watts. Yeah. Okay. I think we I think we have another another topic for another day for yeah, that one, or at least a uh, hot take. Huh? Yeah. To do a little bit more research and, and dig dig down for that. Um, but I, I guess if you're, if you're saying 60, we'll, we'll just make this like uh, Vegas. Um, I'm taking the under okay. for, for 60 watts or whatever the relative percentage of, of that is. Sure. Okay. Well, I'll find a study that agrees with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess that's us wrapping up. Um, the only thing we'd like to say is, uh, if you enjoy our show, we are looking for more listeners. Um, and if you want to rate us review us that helps um put us at the top of the listing and also share share with friends we love word of mouth too and i think if you have feedback um yeah leave leave us a, a message and we're happy to to learn or a topic you'd like to hear us talk about yeah uh, i think we're more than critical open to that. or uh, praises but absolutely you're so thanks uh, what do we always say rubber uh, side yeah, down all right. yeah thanks for listening keep the road side down and we'll be back soon